1: down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So,
0: Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, uh, Russian and Eurasian Studies channel. Today we're talking with Yanis Kokosalakis about his book, Building Socialism, the Communist Party and the Making of the Soviet System, 1921 mm-hmm. to 1941. Yanis, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, hi, so I took my PhD at the University of Edinburgh. I finished in 2017 so that's um, some six years ago now. Um, since then I've uh, worked as a research fellow as a postdoc I suppose at um, University College Dublin in Ireland and I'm currently working in Bielefeld University in Germany where I'm also a research fellow.
2: So what made you choose this specific time frame and enterprise for your study?
1: So the time frame is basically the interwar period in European history, but it's also um, the period referred to as the construction of socialism in the Soviet Union. so it's it comes right after the Civil War when the Bolsheviks emerge victorious and try to figure out what they want to do with that hard-earned victory of theirs. And it goes all the way up to the um, Nazi invasion of the USSR, so the Great Patriotic War. So this is essentially um, um, the time period in which the Soviet system was formed. It's um, it's a very experimental time period from the perspective of the Bolsheviks. And it's also a very challenging time for both the party and um, Soviet society as a whole. And it obviously ends with this massive test of arms, which is the Second World War. So I thought that if uh, if you wanted to look at uh, the Soviet system and its formative period and its sort of um, preparation to face up um, with the capitalist world, then that's that's the time to look up.
2: And how did you get to this specific enterprise?
1: So the Kirov factory is, um, that's a major machine building factory in Leningrad, present day Saint Petersburg. It's still there. It's a huge part of the city. It has its own district. And um, before it became the Kirov factory, it was um, the Potilov Works. And it was, has always been one of the major industrial enterprises in Russia from, from the very sort of early stages of Russian industrialization. So the Potilov workers also play a central role in the Russian Revolution in 1917 both in February and subsequently and after that the Potilov factory becomes the sort of um, driver of technological innovation in Soviet industry if you like. So it becomes the first tractor producing factory in the Soviet Union, and then it becomes a major tank producing enterprise as well, closer to the war. So it's basically something like, um, I mean, if you you think of the cutting edge of the the contemporary U.S. economy as the, the big tech companies, this is the equivalent for the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s
2: so why specifically choose this one if it's a leading enterprise it's not necessarily representative of the whole soviet union then is it
1: definitely it's definitely not a representative enterprise um it's also not uh leningrad is also not a representative city in terms of um the soviet union as a whole so um, the Soviet Union is a country. Was a country with um, extreme inequalities in terms of development, of uh, urban development, uh, in terms of um, the concentration of its population in in various some um, urban settlements. So it's um it's very hard to look for something average when you're looking at the, at the Soviet Union in in the interwar period so what i decided to do was to look at a place where the political experiment that the Bolsheviks wanted to enact which was the construction of socialism had um near ideal conditions and The way to basically look at it is, what is socialism? The the idea of socialism is to essentially build uh, a new type of society based on um, public ownership of the means of production, planning, and the political power of the working class. So the idea is that you get rid of the bosses and the owners of industrial enterprises like Otilo, and put the workers in charge. So how do you do this? You, you start with nationalizing industry and then you teach the people who work the means of production to actually administer the means of production. And there were few places in Soviet Russia at the time that looked more promising for such an experiment than Kirov or Putilov because it was a big industrial enterprise, it was complex, it had um, a tradition of political organization, its workers had a tradition of political engagement, it was very friendly to socialist ideas, it had been so for many decades. So I figured that if you're going to look at how this sort of, um, political project works on the ground, this is a good place to look, it's a good place to
2: start. Okay. And can you tell our readers when it transitioned from uh, the Krasny-Putulovits factory into the Kirov factory? I assume probably 1934, the same time we became Kirov district after Kirov was shot.
1: Yeah, this is pretty much it here. Was uh, murdered in December nineteen thirty four. You have uh, a massive meeting at uh, the um, still Red Butylovite factory at the time, which decides to rename the factory here for, I suppose. suggests that the factory should be renamed Kirov, then obviously this is um, overwhelmingly supported and then the decision gets um, taken up by some higher instance of the um, industrial authorities at the time.
2: Had Kirov ever visited the factory just out of curiosity?
1: Yes, Kirov had um, visited the factory uh, several times and one of his, at least in, in my in, in my research, the first time I see him visiting the factory is um, in the mid-1920s, where he arrives in the factory as a representative of the Central Committee in order to convince the factory workers, the, the communists of the, of the Kira factory, to, I suppose the Red Butilovite factory at the time, to support the Central Committee against um, Grigory Zinoviev.
2: Okay, because he actually was never in Vyatka.
1: <laughs> he yes. was born in
2: Orzhum, but he never actually set foot in Vyatka, which yes, is now named for him.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, um, yeah, I I remember asking someone about this, and they weren't um, they weren't sure how what the connection was. But he definitely, I mean, uh, with with the factory, he definitely had some links. He, he kept visiting after that as head of the Leningrad Party organization. Because obviously this remained, again, the driver of Minsk industry. So he was there quite often. He was talking to um, the Worker Communist here quite often. So I think it was quite a, it was a less odd um, decision, let's put it that way, than the Okay.
2: So, uh would you like to tell us a little bit about uh the sources you use? I assume that since this was such a big important factory, there are a lot of archival documents available to you, but did you use other things like diaries or journals or newspapers?
1: I most I mostly used um archival sources, mostly the um, the my main source base is the um the archival collections of the Kira Factory Primary Party Organization, which is now part of the, um, central state archive for, um, historical and political documents in St. Petersburg, so the party archive in St. Petersburg. Um, I did use some newspaper materials, mostly, um, the Enclave um did the factory
2: so, itself produce a newspaper
1: the factory produced several newspapers um through the 1920s of um different um regularity and quality and they were at some point in the mid 19 in the probably early 1930s consolidated into one um newspaper the the kilovite, after after the after the, the after the renaming it was some um, called a pyrovite. And that's um definitely a, a good source for everyday factory life, but uh it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to look at because um certainly this um, these um, newspapers will give you um a a very good picture and to the culture, I would say, of um, of the of the party organization, and what is publicly said, and what is expected to, um, of of party members, and what the sort of cultural norms are, and the fact but I wanted to look from primarily into the politics. I wanted to to see what these people were arguing about, what the problems were, and how they went about resolving them, or not resolving them, but actually how they went about talking about them.
2: So basically, the soap operas that played out in the party cells, those are always fun.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely.
2: So tell us a little bit about how your work differs from previous scholarship on this topic. Certainly, this factory has been studied before, building socialism has been studied before, but what do you do differently?
1: so my um the way I got into this subject was that i want i really wanted to look at the sort of um at the overlap between social and political histories and in in my um in my understanding of how the field has evolved is that we started with political history we started with the with the conflicts at the top. We started with um the factionalism and Stalin and Trotsky and then the the major um initiatives like uh industrialization, collectivization and we then moved on to social history and looking how these things played out on the ground and how um, it wasn't necessarily the case that just because something had been implemented at the top um, didn't mean that, um, it would, um, just because something had been decided at the top didn't necessarily mean that it would be implemented um, at the bottom in the way that it was intended.
2: Usually it wasn't in my
1: experience. <laughs> exactly, usually it wasn't and this is the major lesson of um, social history, I suppose. And what I wanted to do was to look at the process by which this sort of um, transmutation of policy initiatives happened. And I was really interested in the fact that the Soviet Union, the Soviet system as a state, as a, as a, as a governing structure, was extremely invested in getting activist participation and to um, into its initiatives. It really wanted people to be involved and to um, what it was doing. It wanted people to be invested in, both in, in terms of, um, of personal political commitment, but I actually wanted to get normal people, everyday workers and peasants in rural environments to actually administer policy. And I wanted to see how this happened. I wanted to look at um, what this meant in practice.
2: So this is the grassroots that you talk about for our listeners, right? Exactly. Yeah. So why is this important to look at these administrators, often of very small things, section committees, local schools, why mm. do we care?
1: Well, I think it's, uh, at least the reason why I care, is that the fact of their existence, and not just their paper existence, but their, their actual activity, is, I mean, it's testament to the extent the Soviet Union was a revolutionary society well after um, the Russian Civil War. This is... Um, this is a state that is trying to change the way it is being governed as it's, as it's moving. And this is obviously, this is really hard and it doesn't necessarily work very well or efficiently because obviously the more people you get involved in decision making and um, executive administration, then the more things there are that can go wrong and the more conflicts there yeah, are, we've, we've all
2: done group projects. We know what it's like.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and anyone who's served on a committee knows that it's probably the least efficient way of making decisions. But they never, nevertheless, they insisted on, on doing this. And for me, this was a revelation because um, from my previous knowledge, from what I'd read before, I had assumed that you have the first revolutionary period of 1917 and the civil war, then because nothing works they panic and they retreat into the sort of uh, middling ground of the uh, new economic policy where they let the economy run itself but keep uh, keep tight control in politics, and then after that you have what is usually referred to in the Western Stalinism, which is basically this sort of crass industrialization drive, some people argue that it was revolutionary, some others argue that it was um, counter-revolutionary, if you come from
2: a a
1: Trotskyist perspective, (laughs) or or even a Menshevik perspective, perhaps, I don't know. But uh, they all agree, I think, that this was something that was completely... not only driven from above, but it was concentrated at the top. So there was no element of politics below the high excellence of the party. And what I discovered by looking at the um, at the transcripts of the party meetings and the stenographic records is that these people are arguing about stuff all the time and they're trying to make um, things work. They usually fail, but they also succeed in, in to some extent.
2: Well, it's so, not entirely their fault. So many of these people have almost no education, very little job training.
1: No, of I course, mean, yeah.
2: they're kind of doomed from the beginning and the fact that they're successful in any way is actually quite amazing.
1: I suppose that just keeping the show running was in its own sense a success. It's obviously um, it's obviously just um, trying to put out fires most of the times, but they, by and large, they succeed in putting out the fires. Except, of course, when they don't. But you, know, you do get catastrophic failures in the system, like obviously the um, the failure of agriculture following collectivization, or the the mass repressions, which is also um, in many ways well, Getty, failure of, of the system, but yeah,
2: Getty of course argues that it's the massive failures and fuck ups that lead to mass repression, and I, I would agree that you know a lot of it is about these underlying issues that they can't fix, and it just seems like how can it get so bad if you're not doing this on purpose?
1: Yeah, and obviously, I don't think anyone is. Trying to do really badly on purpose. I mean, I suppose there are people who. Yeah,
2: I think obeying, most of them are just deeply but, incompetent or yeah. drunk, <laughs> or both. Corrupt, maybe.
1: <laughs> you can definitely you can definitely see this. Um, um, it it comes across very clearly in the um in, in the party transcripts. Drunkenness is a major issue. Oh, God, yeah. And it often has to do, um, or or rather, it's often connected to corruption.
2: Well, yeah, because that's how they fund their drinking, is they steal yeah. stuff from work to pay for the alcohol.
1: Exactly. And then this gets interpreted by other people as counter-revolutionary behavior. And it's not clear to me if they're doing this um, in a sort of, semi-disingenuous way in the sense that if I say counter-revolutionary, then maybe someone will pay attention. Or if they have internalized this uh, um, language to that extent that they really think that bad stuff means counter-revolutionary. So we just call it counter-revolutionary because it's clearly bad when you show up to work drunk and operate heavy machinery because you get people killed. Therefore you are a counter-revolutionary.
2: I think it could be both.
1: Definitely. I think so as well. I mean, you, so, you can't tell from the sources, but to think, um, if you, if we exercise our normal human understanding then it will be, um, it's clear that it's both.
2: So let's talk about what role ideology plays at the grassroots, because we are dealing with people who are not very well educated, who are often not very well read. Um, who often are frequently chastised for not having good political literacy, not attending these study circles that they're supposed to go to. Uh, and certainly we tend to think of ideology as not really playing a role in everyday decisions. It's sort of you know, something that goes on at the higher levels, but real, real everyday people don't believe in ideology. It's just something annoying that gets in their way. What is your experience with this?
1: I think that's a that's a fascinating topic. So, I'm glad you asked that question because it can it gives me license to talk a bit again um, about the about how I got into this topic. So, before I decided to become a Soviet historian, I, I had a I have a master's in intellectual history. So, I was more a, of a historian of ideas type person. And I was really interested in Soviet Marxism and how, you know, you get this intellectual um, tradition from basically Germany becoming state ideology in Russia and what this meant for the ideas and the intellectual exchange and all that. And at the time, I remember... um, presenting this topic to a potential supervisor that's more than 10 years ago and I, um, obviously i will not name them and he told me how how do you want to do uh, a study of soviet marxism in the Stalinist soviet union there was there was nothing there's nothing there that is of interest like, there was no ideology there was no theoretical change. it was all a sort of um it, it's all political theater and it doesn't matter at all. So if 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 there's anything to say about Soviet Marxism, it probably comes after the '60s. So it was a no from him. And anyway, I sort of abandoned that topic then because of this discouragement. And what I discovered in by looking at the sources is that these people who are, um, you know, uh, machinists and uh, fitters and crane operators, they are extremely keen on discussing Marxist ideas. And obviously their, their conceptual understanding isn't deep from the sort of academic perspective, but they are definitely keen on using language and they are consistent a lot of the time. So they have an understanding of their own of what things like class, worker, socialism, revolution, dictatorship of the proletariat, these basic Marxist concepts mean, and they use them all the time. And this has, um, obviously this has made me think that a lot of what people uh, we'll dismiss as this sort of crude um, version of Marxism that was uh, the official Soviet doctrine, so to speak, it has a lot to do with the fact that it really did. Um, it, it really was addressed, genuinely addressed to everyday people with a very low level of formal education. And in in that regard, there is a lot of ideology on the factory floor. These people don't necessarily know what the I don't know what role the hegelian tradition plays in marxism or they probably have never read Marx's um, doctoral dissertation on um the materialism of democritus but they really care about more accessible texts like the communist manifesto and um obviously it, later it was on the
2: abcs the... at that time the abcs of communism by Bukharin
1: yeah the abc of communism as well and subsequently also the um, the, the short course oh on,
2: that one's awful i'm sorry yeah. that is it's, a horrible book it's, it's just so dry and boring
1: it's not great it's not a great <laughs> book but you know when when you when you're, when you're looking at people um, about 100 years ago who had probably you know, probably never finished primary school, taking time of work to study books, that's, that's a very interesting historical phenomenon, mm-hmm. I think, regardless of what you think of the politics of the Soviet Union and what is going on at the time. So it, it's, obviously ideology has um, some, it's, it's a very strong issue, It's very present in the documents
2: so why don't you explain to our listeners how the Bolsheviks viewed the position of the party in the post-revolutionary society? Because I found teaching Soviet history in the U.S., uh, a lot of Western readers really don't know anything about it. They know that it's bad and it didn't work, but they don't know anything really more than that. So would you like to explain how they viewed things would work and how that actually plays out? Um, well.
1: I think the first thing to say is that they had no idea. So if you look at, um, setting aside Marx and Engels here, if you look at Lenin's writings before the Russian Revolution, the party is rarely mentioned as a post-revolutionary institution. So if Lenin talks about parties in his polemics against other political organizations before the revolution, but in his major um, theoretical, so to speak, um, consideration of what a revolutionary society, what a social society was meant to look like, the state of revolution, he has nothing to say about the party. He, he talks about the state and primarily about this um, Marxist, um, holy grail type idea that the state at some point will wither away. What does that mean? And he offers the standard Marxist argument that, you know, the state is an instrument of class oppression, and as class oppression recedes into the past, then the state becomes superfluous, and its um, functions get reabsorbed into society, because it's not there to oppress anymore, but it's there to just administer stuff. So he uses, um, I think both Lenin and Marx and Engels use this sort of um expression that you have this transition from the administration of people to the administration of things. And that's the, that's what gives you communism in the end. It's the disappearance, the extinction of the state. And But then uh, at, at some later writings, j- again just before the revolution, he begins to realize that it's not clear how workers will administer the state. And he begins to to set out this argument that the workers who are more advanced, who are um, more conscious, is the term that he uses, will have to lead. They will have to provide leadership to those who aren't. So those workers who are basically in favor of overthrowing capitalism and building socialist society will have to show the way. And these people are the people who are organized in the Communist Party, or at least they should, because if they believe that this is a good thing to do, then they sh- should obviously be members of the Communist Party. And now what happens is that gradually, as the civil war progresses, the Bolsheviks um, emerge as the only party that is comprehensively on the side of the revolution so basically by by the end towards the end of the war if you if you're still in favor of the revolution you have to be with the bolsheviks because all of the other organizations that were revolutionary that were, that did support um the formation of soviets and you know, these revolutionary worker councils that um were supposed to be the um, the administrative arms of the new state, all of them have either been absorbed into the Bolshevik Party or dissolved or um, outlawed by the Bolsheviks after um, a conflict or other. And Obviously, the, the major turning point comes when the, the, the partners of the Bolsheviks in the, in the October Revolution, the ones who served in the first revolutionary government with them, the left socialist revolutionaries um, they tried to stage a coup against the Bolsheviks in, in Moscow in July 1918 because they disagreed with the terms of the Brest Litov Treaty with oh, um, Imperial Germany. Shooting and then,
2: Lenin didn't help. <laughs> well, yes.
1: <laughs> so after this, they were outlawed and the Bolsheviks were the only legal party in what, in, in, so in, revolutionary, in Revolutionary Russia at the time. So everyone else who was still invested in the revolution, they had to work with the Bolsheviks. And eventually Bolshevism became, from one revolutionary faction, became the faction of the revolution. It became the Revolutionary Party. And obviously it was subsequently renamed into the Russian Communist Party and so on and so forth
2: but that takes a long time because even up through the war period they're using the all union communist party bolshevik acronym
1: yeah yeah definitely so they keep the they keep the bolshevik acronym because they they're very proud of the tradition they're 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 happy to admit individual people from other organizations in but they don't um, they, they're they not very keen on suggesting that, you know, there was a movement and now all of these different factions can become one organization again now that we've won. They are very proud of their role in that um, victory and very keen to ensure that it is them that actually run the show.
2: Does it bother workers that there's only one party? I mean, because parties in general in Russia are actually a fairly new phenomena. Uh, They would only been legal since, what, 1905? And even then, the majority of the right wing and centralist parties are dominated by wealthy elites. I mean, does it make a difference to them since workers weren't traditionally included in any sort of party system anyway?
1: It obviously makes a difference to those workers who were members of other organizations because they become ipso facto they become targets for repression. But then, for most other people and for most sympathizers even of other organizations, it doesn't really matter because what they do is they support the revolution. I mean, obviously for those of them that do and it's it's not clear to them necessarily what the differences between the parties are. They support policies and the Bolsheviks are very um they're very skilled in adopting those policies that are popular with the working classes and the peasantry. So by the time, the Bolsheviks have won the civil war, I think they've done a pretty good job in identifying themselves with the Soviet state, not only in the sense that they control it and that they, they, they're, they, they are the only legal party, but also in terms of claiming ownership of the revolution at least as far as those people who, who, who care about the revolution are concerned, obviously, because if you are against the revolution, then you don't care who, um, who represents it. You're just, you just want it to go away. But for those, um, people who saw themselves as supporters of, um, the red side in the Civil War. By the time the Civil War ends, they are very happy to identify themselves as Bolsheviks.
2: Okay. So you mentioned in your book that after World War One, the urban population declines precipitously for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, The economy is trashed. You can find food better in the countryside. Uh, can you tell your listeners What exactly some of these factors were and why they're important um, for the Bolsheviks who are trying, you know, trying to be the party of the urban working class, why it matters when the urban working class suddenly disappears. And how do they seek to rebuild this key class?
1: Well, I think... um... (laughs) I think, uh, I think you've answered your question to uh, some extent there, because obviously <laughs> if, if your major constituency disappears, then w- what are you doing running the state? These people have a very clear understanding of what politics is, and it's based on class. They believe that politics is a reflection of class relations, and they claim to be a reflection of the ruling role of the working class in the socialist in a socialist society.
2: Although, in fairness, you know the workers weren't the majority in any way in the czarist no. period, or even up through World War Two.
1: No, no, de- uh, definitely, so... <laughs> definitely not. But that, <laughs> that wasn't the issue because um, if you're a Marxist, then you obviously you realize that. Uh, the, the bourgeoisie or the aristocracy, they, they are minority classes. Just because you're a minority numerically doesn't mean you can be the ruling class. The challenge is the challenge for Marxists is how to turn a class like the working class or a class that is um in a sense defined by its subaltern position, subordinate position, how to turn it into a ruling class. And What they say is, well, we've built a worker state. It's a state that is grounded in industry, and it's ruled by a revolutionary working-class party. So the fact that the Bolsheviks are in power is, in their mind, in itself, a reflection of the fact that the working class is in power. So if the working class doesn't exist, their claim to legitimacy goes away. But they also don't know what to do either. They can't have any sort of um, conceptual anchor point for any political initiative. They don't know. They don't know how to build working class institutions if they if, if there are if there are no workers. How how should they go about doing it? So what they choose to do is they basically restore capitalism in a managed way. So they let capitalism run its course and recreate the working class by sort of drawing them into the cities again and the factories and so on and so forth. And that's a new economic policy.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder
1: made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder.
2: And this is when you get all of the concessions to Western companies and stuff for our listeners, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. And um, they try to get some foreign capital and into the country, they tried it very seriously. It didn't work so well for political reasons, but also for um, reasons that had to do with the state of the world economy at the time. But very, um, they, they were they were happy to do it. I mean, they they were going to keep um, keep on to state power. They would hold on to it, but they were they were okay with allowing foreign capital to come and invest into Russia and rebuild the economy obviously um, with a margin for profit, if that meant that they could then restart the process of socialist construction. And in many ways, that um, is very similar to what uh, um, the Chinese Communist Party did um, in the late 1970s and early 80s. Obviously, I'm not going to talk about uh, China now, and a lot of people disagree about the nature of the Chinese economy. Um, eh,
2: it's, it's a perfectly right fine now. comparison for this,
1: but it's um, it's it's not only that. I mean, it's not only a, a comparison we can make as historians. They, the Chinese communists, were making this comparison as they were introducing these reforms. So it's um. It's, in a sense, a major precedent, um, the new economic policy, for one of the greatest stories of economic transformation in modern history, which is um, sort of the rise of the Chinese economy.
2: Okay. So in Chapter 2, you focus on factional struggles within the lower level of the party organization. What exactly were these struggles and why are they important?
1: Uh, So uh, a lot of your listeners um, will be aware of the major um, struggles for Lenin's mantle, as it were, after um, Lenin's death. And obviously the most famous of this is uh, Stalin versus Trotsky. Everybody who knows anything about the Soviet Union has heard of this major um, conflict. But the the interesting thing is that there are conflicts on the factory floor both before that and after Trotsky. And in my in my view, the most um, the most significant and not um, particularly well known of this uh, of these factional struggles was the one of the so-called um, new opposition. So the, the struggle of the alliance between Zinoviev and Kamenev against the Central Committee. It's usually presented as a, as a thing against Stalin, but at the, at the time, Stalin is not an obvious contender for power. He's, he's just a general secretary, and he is obviously a major figure, but he is not... Someone who is often seen as Lenin's successor, and the reason why I think that uh, this new opposition is perhaps the most significant of all um, of all the these um, factional episodes is because at the time Zenoviev was um, the head of the Leninist party organization and. In his struggle with um, the Central Committee, he managed to successfully mobilize the Leningrad Party, including the Potila factory, against the Central Committee. And this is the only time something like this happened. And in all of the other major and also not so major episodes of um, factionalism in the 1920s, what you have is some people in the Central Committee disagreeing with the main line and making the disagreements public and you will then have some people in the local organizations also supporting them and there will be some votes that don't necessarily go the way of the Central Committee but you never have a major party organization and a major industrial center rebelling against the center, against the center committee and this is what um Zenobia did essentially.
2: Can you tell our listeners what the core issues in this conflict were? like what policy issues or political stances would have mobilized the workers to care?
1: well, as it were, it was um it was about. The future of socialism, it was about the the new economic policy. So at the time, the fact that um, the party had made a compromise with capitalism had been a particularly bitter pill to swallow for a lot of activists, because they were expecting that there would be the revolution and then, you know, socialism. So they weren't happy about that, but they were also not happy with the way it was going. It looked like um, the pace of industrial growth wasn't particularly good, and that was particularly problematic for places like Leningrad, major industrial regions, because without industrial growth, you don't get sufficient employment. You don't get good wages. You don't get some got get enough consumer goods, and so on and so forth. So Zinoviev, um, in a sort of, I wouldn't necessarily say a particularly dishonest way, but he, he capitalized on this discontent, and he, he mobilized it against the Central Committee, and. Try to put forward a a sort of more pro-industrial political platform. There was there there wasn't any concrete proposal. Uh, I think that's that's really important. But what he was doing was he was taking this um, this sort of um, smouldering dissatisfaction and he was converting it into political capital, saying, "Look." What is basically happening is that instead of our economy growing into socialism, it's growing into capitalism, and we need to change um, this direction immediately. And in in doing so, he got all of the of the Leninist Party organization to support this line against the Central Committee line in favor of the NEP, which at the time was actually. Moving towards a more pro industrial position itself, so the the um, the Congress in which um, the the new opposition made itself was um it was it was named the Congress of Industrialization. That was the that was a sort of political slogan attached to it by the party because the idea was that they were the the, um, the economy was now secure enough. To make um, major investments in heavy industries, so in a way, um, Zenoviev chose a rather inopportune moment. If he if he was if he if, if he was really trying to um to become boss in the party by mobilizing discontent, he was doing it after this had peaked i think but the interesting thing is that this was there it was it it was a problem and it was definitely something that um that had to be addressed by the center
2: how do the workers react to later factional conflicts like with the trade unionists and tomsky or uh with of course zinoviev kamenev and Bukharin in the mid-30s
1: So, in the first round of Zinovich and Kamenev, what happened was you have these people who trust their local leadership. They are being told that the centre is, um, is not serving their interests, so they support their local leadership against the centre in order to, sort of, um, to get a political initiative that is more in line with um, with their own interests. Now, after this gets defeated, and after people like Sergei Kirov and other major figures of, um, of the Central Committee come to Leningrad and tour the city factory by factory in order to win every single organization back um, over into the, into the Central Committee line, what happens is that they realize that actually the center is quite responsive to what they want. The center is about to enact a major um, industrialization drive. So, following on from that, they become quite unhappy with uh, with factionism. They're not. They're not. Um, they're not very keen to support other um, other political initiatives that go against the central line because they realize that the interests of industry are basically aligned with the government. So they become a bit hostile to people who, who want to support alternative directions in the sense that they, they just don't like people who come across as you know, busybodies who want to, to create, create trouble. Create problems. Yeah. Obviously, there are people who don't really like the pace of industrialization after it picks up because it's actually an excruciating process. But they become pushed aside in, mainstream po- in, in the mainstream politics of the party organization because there is a mass recruitment of new members who are actually really keen for this industrialization drive. Is this
2: the Lenin levy?
1: Yes, definitely. This is this is a major this is a major turning point. So after Lenin dies the party launches a uh, a series of recruitment drives to make the party more representative of the working class, to bring more working class members into the party and so connect the party with its industrial constituency so they were worried that obviously they had they had become this sort of um, um isolated faction in Soviet society and what they do is look we are a party of the working class let's bring the working class in so that we can renew those links and what happens then is that you get all those um young keen Uh, ambitious people who want, who are invested in in party politics and who want industrialization to work and who who do see their own um, life interests aligned with industrial progress. They want this to work and they don't necessarily care so much about things like um, internal party democracy or procedure and that kind of stuff.
2: Okay. How do these uh, low-level communists react to the myriad of educational and political campaigns that the party demands they participate in? Things like all of these study circles or, uh, you know, the 25,000-year movement or all the extra political agitation they're supposed to do.
1: Well, it's hard work because these are people who have day jobs, right? And yes. then they, they often have to stay... Stay at the factory after work to attend a two or three hour meeting where they talk about stuff. And a lot of them get bored and they drop out, but there's always enough of them to actually ensure that these initiatives proceed in one way or another. So the 25,000ers, for example, which we are basically worker recruits from the major industrial cities who were sent into the countryside to enact the policy of collectivization, then that in particular as a major provider of those. I can't really remember the figures because I don't have any um, notes with me now, but um, one of the interesting things that I found specifically about the 25,000 campaign is that it also acted as a way to mend um, relations between the various left-wing factions that were critical of the new economic policy, and the, and, and the majority who supported um, whatever the Central Committee was supporting at any given time. So people like uh, people who had perhaps been Trotskyists in the past, they became $25,000 because they saw this as the, the the party finally coming into its senses and striking out against the capitalist elements in the countryside for example now in terms of things like uh education and um, other political initiatives what happens is that most activists especially for the lower um lower profile campaigns. So not things like the twenty five thousand euros, but say a, you know a campaign to
2: like Lickbase, maybe yeah. oh okay.
1: or yeah or to subscribe to newspapers or some sort of things like that that's way where... take out
2: state loans. Those are the buy the bonds
1: that's a Yeah, that's a major one as well. So things like that. They will usually um should I put this they can manage them. So what they do is when they find a way to take active part in a campaign that is, that is also consistent with what they want to achieve in their everyday lives perhaps or even some more long-term plan they might have, they will take part and they will make it about them in a way. And again, not, I, this is—it's not—it's they're not being dishonest. So these people are, are being told that they are the ruling class, that they—it's their job to run the state. So when the state gives them, or the the party, the party leadership, which is also the government at the time, there's a huge overlap at least, when it gives them a task, they take it at face value and they say, "Well, I will decide." What the right way to implement that task is, and as it happens, you know the the interests of the working class are entirely aligned to my own personal interests because I'm a <laughs> worker. So, yeah. so this is what they do. And then, for example, there's um there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of campaigns about um, controlling. The quality of uh, of consumer goods and um, the quality of food served at the factory canteens and people are very keen on participating in those because obviously this is this is something you rely on for your everyday life. you want the canteens to be good so when the party runs a competition for the best canteen, you will definitely um, you will definitely make sure that the people working in the canteen actually serve good quality food because you are the one eating it.
2: Yeah, I assume the same with basic hygiene campaigns. No yeah, roaches. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So in chapter five of your book, you look at the draft 1936 constitution and its discussion. I, of course, wrote a book on this topic, so it is quite (sighs) near and dear to my heart. Um, So did your examination of workers' reactions to the draft compare with my study of a primarily rural region? Is it very similar? Is it very different? Do they have different interests when they make suggestions?
1: I think... I think it's quite similar, except in, But you'd highlighted that, obviously, in the rural regions, the, the more peasant um, communities were a bit aware that they were being um, sort-changed by the constitution, mm-hmm. and they weren't particularly happy about that.
2: Yeah, not getting paid vacation and sick days really yeah. does.
1: But um, obviously, in the in the cities, that's not an issue at all because it's that's a constitution that is basically about them. That's that's the that's how they that's how they perceive it, and no, they they're very happy about it. They just they make a lot of detailed um, comment on on various articles, but there's nothing that is substantially political they don't necessarily disagree with with stuff some of them are obviously um, a bit um they're a bit um reluctant to implement what we would probably discover uh, describe as the more liberal um, elements of the constitution so they they, when you say more
2: liberal which ones are you talking about the giving former kulaks and religious people voting rights that one or
1: yeah that kind of stuff so they're not um
2: no one is happy with that one except for like stalin for some reason
1: yes because so i think for stalin and the leadership this is something that shows that they've won right so if, if they can implement that it means that the the, the state is safe
2: well, I also think they legitimately believe that these classes are gone and the people on the ground are like, uh, no, this dude just shot at me the other day, uh, yeah. this is still an issue, let's not do this.
1: Exactly, yeah, I mean, but I think Stalin probably had enough information from various channels to realize that there was still plenty of discontent, probably plenty of, um... Would you call them counter-revolutionaries if they're not consciously so? But anyway, the, the people that uh, the discourse of the time calls counter-revolutionaries, that they're still there. So I'm pretty sure Stalin is aware of, of their presence, but he probably, he probably genuinely feels that they aren't a threat. But that's clearly not the case with the... Um, the well, assume, with the a drunken file. Yeah.
2: I assume that's the difference between you know being comfy in the Kremlin and you being in a village and having had this person actually shoot through your windows or drunkenly yeah. bust out your you know glass or chase you with a stick. Most recently, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> and especially of course for those people in 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 the Kira factory. Kirov had just been murdered, and everyone there is convinced that actually this is the work of counter-revolutionaries. So um, one, of the, um, one of the most interesting um, nuggets I found in, in the archives was, uh, again, this sort of morning uh, meeting for Kirov that happened on the night of his murder, level, as soon as it was announced. And you have this old worker, or old Potilovite worker, giving a speech there, and it's, it's very interesting that he suggests that this is something that came from, from within our own ranks. This is, this is the, the forces of old Russia are striking at the Soviet state. And at the same time, this is, I mean, this is, this is not something they could have seen in, in the press. This is something that they, they, they just came up with it because they were thinking in those terms, right? It was part of their own lived experience and their intellectual outlook. So these guys were definitely um, not um, feeling that the Soviet state was secure, especially after Kira's murder.
2: Well, I certainly argue that the reenfranchisement of former class enemies is one of the reasons you have Repression. No, cl- clearly not the only reason, but certainly it contributes as people are like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this. And they start inundating organizations yep. with reports of all of these what would have otherwise generally been ignored or reclassified, but they start yeah. classifying them as class enemy actions uh, yes, in exactly. response then to once
1: this. You, w- once you assume that these people, because of their enfranch- and enfranchisement, and they have access to the state apparatus then fairness some of them
2: actually say, Hey, I we're now re enfranchised, I no longer have to pay taxes, fuck the collective farms, (laughs) you know, let's reopen the churches. I mean, there are people at the grassroots who organize Mm -hmm. to do these what would be obviously anti revolutionary things. So it's not entirely made up. I mean this does actually happen.
1: It's, I and mean, certainly it's, it's in the clear, countryside, clear it happens, yeah.
2: people still get murdered. I mean, you know, the tax collector disappears in the forest somewhere or something. Mm. I assume that's less of a problem in a factory, but in villages. It's, people it's, who dislike it's, your politics actually murdering you is a legitimate worry.
1: Yes, I mean, it's definitely it's definitely a problem in, in the countryside that isn't um, necessarily very present in the cities. But of course, we need to be aware that a lot of people working in the factories also had relatives in mm-hmm. the countryside or they were visiting the countryside quite often. So they could obviously be internalizing fears from the countryside. But there's also the other element of them um, sometimes overinterpreting, but also observing behaviors within the factory that they class as counterrevolutionary. So things like, again, showing
2: drunkenness, drunk
1: <laughs> work, and you know, you know, dropping a a ten-ton metal engine block on your colleagues this can be interpreted as a counter revolutionary activity. And in some cases, we, we do know that there are people murdered in or sort of attacked in the factories by angry um, opponents of the regime. Of, of do the you system. have
2: people driven to suicide because that's something I noticed in the factories in the Kirov region mm. uh, particularly in the fur factory there is a lot of conversation about a couple of leading Komsomol workers who commit suicide and that they were basically harassed and bullied into this by various counter-revolutionary elements.
1: So, so I I didn't find anything um, of that sort in terms of the Kirov factory but I was some um, I was also looking at um other um documents from the Leningrad region um just in order to have uh, a better perspective of what the um what the picture from the perspective of the regional organization was and this appears to be the case in some smaller um yeah, some smaller settlements, some smaller um, cities in the region, some towns. But um, the ones I remember, they are usually, um, they usually refer to mid-ranking officials as the culprits. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely remember one case of um, of one woman um i don't think she was a communist but she was uh she was a shock worker so mm-hmm. a, a highly productive worker so a decorated um, worker one of the one of those um people who the party was promoting as model citizens and she was um she was harassed by some people in the party apparatus including one foreman in her factory who was it sexual
2: to, harassment or just think, normal yes. harassment because so with it's, women it's, I <laughs> often see exactly. it's a sexual harassment or gender-based violence
1: it was um, um, it, it comes across as gender-based violence because it's obviously not clear because the language is a bit cryptic in in those cases but it seems like um, this was a particularly sleazy character with um, with a with a history of uh,
2: Extorting sex from women who worked under him. I've actually seen it where it's spelled out. We have a guy in Kirov named Pizhin who comes from the Gorky car factory. Mm. That's one of the accusations made against him is that he uh, forces his female underlings to sleep with him.
1: Yeah, so what happens is that this this woman commits suicide. And this then triggers a disciplinary investigation into... um, into the regional party committee and then it emerges that the uh, this guy is um, somehow he he is enemy of the court. people somehow well not in not in the not in the documents I've looked but it emerges that um, he goes to court mm-hmm. and then at some point he's um he, he's uh he's sentencing is Either reduced or caused by some higher instance. And this then triggers a further investigation Uh from the party apparatus. And then who's covering
2: for him? Yeah.
1: Exactly. Who is covering for him? And then what happens is that this feeds into the major investigation that is at the time being launched by Yezhov.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So. All comes together into this sort of um, perfect storm of accusations yeah and uh, which ends badly for most people yeah I mean in
2: Kirov the accusations of suicide the mm. people accused of driving the shock workers or council members to suicide are usually local workers who are somehow identified as counter revolutionary maybe they're drunks maybe they yeah. were former trots and the um, head of the Slobodskoy party organization gets in trouble because he didn't take sufficient measures against them
0: and it turns out that he was involved in some
2: other things that he probably shouldn't have been many years earlier he gets arrested as an enemy of the people but he eventually gets released because it's kirov and that's what happens um
1: if you start digging then obviously things emerge mm -hmm. and depending on the political winds blowing at the time this can be either really dangerous or it can sort of blow over. But But in the late 30s,
2: high-profile suicides tended to be framed as contributed to some sort of social contribution, not a mental illness. There's not that understanding. And they do tend to spark these long, drawn-out investigations.
1: Yeah. What about industrial accidents?
2: Did you have any major industrial accidents in the factory? Uh, you know, uh, no, I don't mean just like somebody getting squished or something. Yeah, no, occasionally. Not,
1: not some, not, not anything like the chemical explosions. that. um, yeah, we had a big yeah.
2: fire, huge fire in the match factory. Cause somebody stored mm-hmm. something improperly and that got a huge investigation into wrecking too, cause it burned down like half the yes, building. Th-
1: there was, I mean, there was an investigation into uh, a fire in, in Kira. And that was um, in late 1938. So it was after the major wave of repression. It was after um, um, the 1938, the January 1938 um, CC Plenum, where they start um, applying brakes. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, obviously, is that this is an emergency meeting of um, the um, the party secretary, the factory director, and the trade union secretary, and some other people. And it gets um, stenographed. And that tells you that someone important actually wants to know what is being said in that meeting. Because usually these types of meetings only. Uh, if someone the takes
2: notes, yeah, you get a protocol, and it's. Sometimes yeah. they're very minimal. Sometimes exactly. A so a
1: protocol is something that anyone can do, but if you get a stenographer present, then someone has sent the stenographer there. And that tells you it's important, but it doesn't get referred to the um, NKVD because... Obviously... Because Berea
2: is now in charge and they're rolling back those policies. Exactly. Okay. So... Our last question, what would you like our listeners to take away from your book? What is our big sum up here?
1: Well, I think that the, the most interesting thing is that it's basically the Communist Party of the Soviet Union did what it said in the tin. It was a revolutionary organization, it was a sort of, um, it was a vanguard, if you like, It was. Uh, it was a massive political organization that was primarily recruited from the working class. And its job, its major task was to transform what was, what had been the Russian Empire into an unprecedented new type of state and society. And that's, I think, extremely interesting, regardless of what you think of both the intention and the end result. So I think we need I think we really need to still look at the Soviet Union in those terms. It's
2: and stop uh, assuming everything is fake.
1: Stop assuming that everything is fake and stop assuming that everything is some um, fixed in some sense. It's not just eternal Russia and it's also not just Stalinism. It's a very dynamic social and political um, experiment, as it were. And it has a lot of us, both on its own terms, but also for the rest of the year, um, for the history of the 20th century, because there were other major states that went down this road, including one that is now... Um, emerging as the largest economy <coughs> in the world. So,
2: <coughs> I assume you don't mean India.
1: <laughs> well, not not India, but uh, who knows? They they also have their own um, homegrown, extremely um, large communist movement there. But no, I was talking about China, which is yeah, um, I know,
2: I was joking.
1: Um, obviously, very much inspired by the Soviet Union in terms of how the party is integrated with the state and society, but also in terms of how it sees it, um, how the party leadership there sees its own um, history and future tasks, I think. So it's, it's always something to keep in mind, I think.
2: Well, thank you for being here and talking to us.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It was um, extremely interesting. Mm -hmm.